So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Yeah, and I'm feeling, I'm grateful to be sober and feeling fairly positive today. How about you, David? I am feeling positive. Yeah. I am. I am. I'm sore as all hell. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just tell you that? Is it my imagination or do you look a little thinner? What's going on? Uh, I'm, I'm, Nate, I'm trying so hard. Um, I'm back in the gym, Okay. you know, preaching my self-care thing. Uh Uh, The sugar thing took a a hiatus and left me around Thanksgiving and I'm back to that. (laughs) So uh, that that left the building with Elvis back around Thanksgiving. So I'm back to the thing. But the here's the thing: uh, I am old, apparently, my joints, my yeah. my body. But um, the elliptical machine is kicking my ass, and so I feel like Gumby has been left in the freezer today. <laughs> I can't I can't bend at the waist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My legs are stiff. Uh, so it's all going to come back. I know I'll be 35 again by probably Thursday. <laughs> 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 but oh I am my. positive about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right, and you know, I'm I'm also paying a little attention to to the to the weight thing. I joined Noom, the big. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The and, behavioral uh, approach. Yeah, and I'm finding it very, very helpful. Yeah, I'm on week five. And uh, as I chart my weight loss, you know, I'm keeping a chart because I'm weighing myself every day. That's part of the deal. Mm -hmm. And quite predictably, it is not the, you know, steady decline that I was hoping for. Ah. You can tell uh, the week I went to Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I had another bump. Uh, last weekend, we took the grandkids, you know, we were out, we were that hot water at our house for the weekend. Uh-huh. And so, uh, and the grandkids, three of the grandkids were coming. So, uh, Allie and I uh, adjourned to the, uh, to a local hotel for the weekend. Yeah. Where I, you know, kind of went off the wagon <laughs> diet wise. And it shows up on the graph. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the weekend and, you know, I'm. Yeah. And really, that's how recovery is, isn't it? It is. It, it looks, you chart it out, it looks a whole lot more like, you know, uh, the stock market over yeah. time. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's definitely a long-term trend, but if you are too, if you watch the dailies too closely, mm-hmm. you can become overly optimistic and unrealistic on good days. Mm-hmm. And you can become pessimistic and go to despair and get a bad case of the fuckets on mm-hmm. bad days, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right, yeah. right. 
Yeah, and and it goes back to you know to knowing why you're doing this, right? You sure. know, if we're doing it out of a victim mentality, or we're feeling deprived, or we're resentful that you know uh, whatever it is yeah. has befallen us, that's landed us where we are, and we're yeah. not taking responsibility, and uh, it can be a really uh, terrible thing. But if we're looking at it like you're saying as a positive tool, and I watch my progress, and I watch what can happen mm-hmm. um, when I'm um, a little. Uh, careless, but it's a day or a week and then I'm back. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not all or nothing thinking, which is a continual. <laughs> there we are. And don't you we know, confront that. that in recovery? Sure, sure, yeah. sure. And of course, we, we talk uh, fairly often on this podcast about taking kind of a cocktail approach to recovery and mm-hmm. not putting all of our eggs in a single basket and being willing to explore other therapies. And uh, along that line, I got to tell you, Allie and I, you know, after our last guest, Mara Giovanni was here and we did that stick mm-hmm. fighting deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was so, uh, taken by that. Yeah. You were it too. You were pumped. And I knew that, I knew that my wife would love it. Mm-hmm. And certainly when I described it to her, she was, she was all over it. So we hired Mara. She's come to the house twice now. We've had two lessons. Nice. Uh, yeah, so I have added Filipino stick fighting to my <laughs> <laughs> to my recovery <laughs> regimen, to my therapeutic approach, and and it's it's wonderful because it isn't all it isn't all aggression and stick fighting and all that kind of stuff, right. but and body movement and vibration, yeah. and, and that's wonderful stuff. Yeah, uh, but she incorporates it with some meditation and and yeah. all of the kind of weird and freaky stuff that I never would even have entertained. Mm-hmm. When I first began my recovery journey, right, especially since um, I was told and really believed early on that there's really only one way to sobriety. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think a lot of us get that message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So actually, David, uh, today we're we, we're going to take a risk and we're going to talk a little bit about. You know, I, I'm afraid what it's going to come across to some people as is we're going to talk trash about the 12 steps, and we're not going to do that. Right. Right. Absolutely. No. Yeah. We both got sober through those programs. Absolutely. Iterations of those programs and um, have great respect for what they continue to do and what they uh, uh, continue to mean to us and the people that we continue to send. But, right. Exactly. Um, but maybe there's more. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some, and there's, there, as a person that, that sees people in a, in a professional way, and, and I work in a behavioral health uh, environment with a lot of therapists and a lot of data. Yeah. Um, to be fair in the work we do in anything, we've got to look at the data and not um, be scared of right. what we see. Right. You know, and we've got to hear people for what their have, experiences may have been. So. Sure, sure, sure. Um, certainly the 12 steps, uh, you know, I got sober in 12 step recovery, sexually sober in 12 step recovery in a program that was a spinoff owes a great deal to the groundbreaking work of AA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, uh, it really, it changed my life, mm-hmm. opened the door to a whole new way of living for me. Exactly. Um, but, it, uh, just because it were, it could well be that it worked for me because I fit a set, mm-hmm. a cultural set, mm-hmm. for whom 
that approach is particularly appropriate. Right. Uh, and that's a point that uh, was made in a recent article that's starting to get a lot of currency. It's fairly short. It appeared in the New York Times uh, a couple of days after Christmas, mm-hmm. last Christmas. Mm-hmm. Written by a woman, Holly Whitaker, uh, who's author of a book called Quit Like a Woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, the attention-getting headline for this little article was The Patriarchy of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. Okay, so I had to read this one when it came across mm-hmm. my desk. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead. It's not that long. I'm going to go ahead and read it and then let you and I talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Here's what she says. I got sober in 2013. It took me about six months to transition from throwing back a few bottles of wine or pints of cheap whiskey a night to total abstinence. I didn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't work the steps. Most important, I wasn't required to enumerate my character defects and work to eliminate them or to buy into the idea that an outsized ego and a lack of humility were the causes of my need to numb myself with alcohol. Mm -hmm. My eschewing the status quo by refusing to use the program scared my loved ones, signaling to them that I wasn't taking my recovery seriously. I wasn't surprised. Participation in AA is not the only effective way to stop drinking, but we've been trained to believe that refuting or even questioning it means you're in denial. The truth is, AA may be the foundation of global recovery, but it wasn't made with everyone in mind. It's a framework created in the 1930s by upper-middle-class white Protestant men to help people like them overcome addiction. Its founders believed the root of alcoholism was a mammoth ego resulting from an entitled sense of unquestioned authority. AA was a miracle for those men, who until then had almost nowhere to turn for help. It was radical in that it was free, and it was fueled by an ethos of service. But it grew out of a fundamentalist Christian organization, the Oxford Group, and as a result, it is undergirded by the same belief system that asserts that Eve grew from Adam's rib. The values baked into its founding continue to shape the way the organization works, and it still has too many echoes, for my liking, of the ways women are expected to blame themselves, follow instructions, and fall into line in a patriarchal society. Mm. Participants are expected to accept the tenets of AA without question. And there is a common refrain that the program works if you work it. In other words, don't ask questions, and any failure is your own fault. The 12 steps include things like admitting powerlessness, turning one's will over to God, cataloging defects of character, asking God to remove those defects, and making amends for any wrongdoing. This program, which was designed to break down white male privilege, made sense to the original members. It reminded them that they were not God and encouraged them to humble themselves, to admit their weaknesses, to shut up and listen. 
Perhaps these were much needed messages when it came to the program's originals, original intended audience. Keep in mind, this was just 10 years after women's suffrage, at the height of the eugenics movement and 30 years before the dismantling of Jim Crow. Mm. But today's women don't need to be broken down or told to be quiet. We need the opposite. I worry that any program that tells us to renounce power that we've never had poses the threat of making us sicker. Mm. I know a lot of women in recovery, and in my real life and social media social circles and through the recovery program I run. These women aren't drinking themselves numb because they're awash in oh-so-much power or because of some pathological inability to follow rules or humble themselves or because their outsized egos are running the show, as AA's messaging would suggest. Quite the opposite. They're drinking because they have so little power, because all they've ever done is follow the rules and humble themselves, because their egos have been crushed under a system that reduces their value to, to subservience, likability, and silence. When I entered recovery, I didn't need to do a searching inventory to catalog all my character defects. They had been played back to me my entire life by almost everyone around me. I was highly aware of the parts of me that were wrong, unruly, and messy, those things that made me unlovable or worse, unladylike. Ever since I could remember, I'd ask God to take those parts away. I drank to feel a sense of wholeness that had been conditioned out of me by society to combat a powerlessness that was my birthright as a woman. Mm. Submitting to the rules of AA was the last thing I needed. Instead, I tapped into a combination of existing approaches to recovery. I focused on developing self-trust, agency, compassion, self-nurturing, and a reclamation of the agency I'd given up. The antidote to my drinking problem was learning it was safe to trust myself, developing a sense of confidence, and rejecting the humility women are conditioned to embrace. I also turned a critical eye on the society that helped make me sick in the first place. In other words, the antidote to my drinking problem looked a lot like feminism. To be sure, AA works for many people, including many women, and it has saved millions of lives. I don't want to see it dismantled or discourage anyone from trying it out. I simply want more people to recognize it's not for all. There are many other evidence-based options available now, from medically assisted treatments to cognitive behavioral therapy to the emerging use of psychedelics, including psilocybin. For most of the people I know who found success in recovery, it isn't just one but a combination of treatments that ultimately works. Women are the fastest growing demographic becoming dependent on alcohol, which means we're on our way to becoming a majority of participants in recovery programs. There's no question that we need help, but we don't need to give up our power. Mm. Wow. Okay. Now that's an honest... Um assessment yeah. from someone that yeah, experienced yeah. it very differently than maybe many people, particularly men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, when I heard, hear her description of, you know, the original, the founders of AA and the guys who were, you know, in the, the, the men and women, I suppose, there were women as well who got sober early on, but, uh, you know, the, the sense of entitlement, the outsized ego, all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. I, it describes me very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh... But a woman in the 30s... Yeah, uh, right. Maybe not. Yeah, at least not all. Right. Yeah, yeah. So could it be... Now, here's the other uncomfortable fact. And uh, this uncomfortable fact is um, brought into stark focus uh, by another article, the next one we're going to go to. Mm -hmm. Um... Not only is AA not for everybody, AA doesn't work for everybody. A 12-step approach is not universally effective. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not unusual for people to make multiple trips mm -hmm. to uh, a rehab center that uses the same approach to administer the same treatment over and over again, seven, eight, nine times mm -hmm. before it takes, if it takes. And the average of people who do go to rehab is three. Okay. Yeah. If you go to rehab at all, you'll probably go three times. All right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. many go seven, eight, nine times. I've got, I have those clients. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. 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 Uh, before we move to the second article, any more thoughts on uh, you the know, first one? Yeah, I mean, my my my, uh, my first thought was, dang, we should have uh, invited a female uh, guest to tell us an experience that they may or may not have had. Yeah. But we kind of came upon these articles and said, let's talk about them. Yeah. So that's why we don't have a female, not because we're so totally tone deaf to um, that, that, uh, okay. Aspect. It's, it's, it's not, it, we're, we're not, we're not necessarily just mansplaining today. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Let's please to our <laughs> wonderful female listeners that we are not mansplaining. That's right. Um, we're man because, questioning. Well, we we're are. opening the conversation. Yeah. We're opening the conversation because I don't know what it feels like to be, um, uh, a woman in a lot of situations, frankly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, in a in a particular church, for instance. Yes. You know, women will hear something very differently than men will experience, and uh, a guy may say, "Well, I, I know he said that, but I don't know. I don't think he meant that. I think he just meant this." Yeah. And women, especially different stories, different backgrounds, hear something completely different. And right. No, he no. That mean you know <laughs> means this, and yeah, and it goes into a place and. Yeah, I don't know what that feels like, yeah. and um, I I didn't grow up in um, a particular ethnicity. I can't pretend I know what that feels like. Sure, you know, um, and and for her to explain to us uh, how um, a woman is is many times going to hear these things and go, "What do you mean?" Uh, oversized ego. What do you mean? Yeah. You know, right. uh, some of these things yeah. when my reality is I'm trying to find a voice at all. Yes. In my life. Yeah. You know, so I, I mean, I, I appreciate where she's going with that. And, and perhaps it isn't merely gender based. Perhaps mm -hmm. there is a significant percentage of men mm -hmm. uh, who, uh, for whom this prescription doesn't exactly fit because uh, they're in a similar place of feeling that they have no agency. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very much, um, uh, I think, a very particular um, uh, demographic mm -hmm. uh, in many ways that AA uh, certainly came out from... Yeah. Uh, 
its inception, as she explains, um, I think sexuality plays into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, we all hear different things and experience things in a way that our narrative and our story are telling us right yeah, yeah, so right, right so if i'm coming in as a female or a gay man or a person that doesn't experience life this way mm-hmm. i don't maybe uh, uh, respond well um to to some some of the things that could uh, trigger me in a in a way that aa would never expect right yeah and and i have people that are 12 step averse you know they just um it isn't gonna well happen. yeah i mean you and i both encounter People who've, they've gone to the program, they've tried the program, they just come out and they just say, hey, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Now, that that doesn't fit my experience because it worked for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. Yeah. I, I didn't perceive taking um, instruction uh, from another white man, yeah, actually, yeah, 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 yeah. to be honest, um, as necessarily feeling belittled. Right, yeah. You know, um, but... I really needed uh, the message of the 12 steps. I needed somebody to call out my ego and name mm-hmm. it. I, need, I, I really needed to look at my character defects because I'd never, ever done that. Right. Uh, all right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the 12 steps opened up my uh, giving myself permission to look honestly at what I thought about relationships, mm-hmm. faith, yeah. myself in the context of a lot of things that had uh, been uh, less than authentic. And sure, sure. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And even uh, since you and I both come from a conservative Christian background, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of that spirituality was, you know, programmed, and now we're on autopilot mm-hmm. to be pushed. It was very uncomfortable for me mm-hmm. to push to get re- honest and to get real clarity on. Uh, what I really believe about God, about a higher power, and the degree to which I actually am trusting in a power greater than myself. Mm-hmm. More than rhetoric, more than religious habit, mm-hmm. right? So it yeah. was transformational of my spiritual experience. I know you've yeah, yeah you talked about the same thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah it, not necessarily a comfortable process, right? but uh, one with a very positive outcome. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on to the second article. This one actually is a few years old. It appeared for the first time in 2015 uh, in Atlantic Magazine. It's been reprinted here and there. Mm-hmm. Folks can find it on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been the subject of a great deal of conversation mm-hmm. in the w- world of recovery and in 12-step recovery. Right. Uh, it is at—this one has a more of a critical tone. Mm-hmm. Toward the 12 steps, it, it can almost come across as a takedown mm-hmm. of 12-step recovery, mm-hmm. far more than the one we just read. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the kind of thing that, you know, the, you know, the part of me that is so grateful to and still committed in a lot of ways mm-hmm. to 12-step recovery, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I resisted reading this mm-hmm. because I don't want my perception, my belief, my outlook, of my biases challenged. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? I want I, I want some confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. just, you know, I, yeah. I want to listen to the political pundits that agree with my political spectrum. I, you know, I don't mm-hmm. want to listen to both sides. Right. Uh, but I've learned that um, if I'm going to be a full human being rather than just a functioning 
you know, ideologue. I've mm-hmm. got to listen. I've got to maintain an open mind. Mm-hmm. Nobody has uh, a monopoly on the truth. So, yeah, yeah. In that no, spirit. I think, yes. And I think that's super important to say, you know, as we, as we listen to, to uh, this coming article, because uh, the, the question that this uh, writer is raising is um, the science of what yeah. we know, yeah, yeah, you know, and that's what we have to look at too. Yeah, you know, uh, there are all these things that should happen, and if you would have done this and that and yeah. twelve step and all that, uh, then it would work for you. Yeah, you know, but um, AA says there are those unfortunates. Yeah, you know, uh, why? Yeah, and yeah. and um, there are a lot of reasons, and so this article yeah. points to um, yeah. But the implication in that reading in AA, mm-hmm. there uh, we have found that many of them could uh, achieve sobriety. Well, I forget the exact phrasing. If they had the capacity to be honest, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So so the, the implication is. Yeah. Yeah, it works if you work it, and if, you, if you're if you unable to be completely honest, then you're going to bail, and it's not going to work for mm-hmm. you. Right, okay. All right, well, the title of this article is The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's mm-hmm. written by, uh, this again, it's a female mm-hmm. author, uh, Gabrielle Glazer, and she's the author of a book called Her Best Kept, Her Best Kept Secret, mm-hmm. Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a very long article. I printed this out, and it ran to 21 pages. We don't have time to read the whole damn thing. <laughs> yeah. But so I, I, I pull out a, a few uh, paragraphs uh, like this one. The 12 steps are so deeply ingrained in the United States that many people, including doctors and therapists, believe attending meetings, earning one's sobriety chips, and never taking another sip of alcohol is the only way to get better. Hospitals, outpatient clinics, and rehab centers use the 12 steps as the basis for treatment. But although few people seem to realize it, there are alternatives, including prescription drugs and therapies that aim to help parents, patients learn to, think in modera- uh, to drink in moderation. Unlike Alcoholics Anonymous, these methods are based on modern science and have been proved in randomized, controlled studies Mm -hmm. to work. All right. Um, And now this one. The big book includes an assertion first made in the second edition, which was published in 1955, that AA has worked for 75% of people who have uh, gone to meetings and, quote, really tried, unquote. It says that 50% got sober right away, and another 25% struggled for a while but eventually recovered. According to AA, these figures are based on members' experience. In his recent book, The Sober Truth, debunking the bad science behind 12-step programs in the rehab industry, gosh, I wonder, yeah, (laughs) Lance Dodes, a uh, retired psychiatry professor from Harvard Medical School, looked at Alcoholics Anonymous's retention rates, along with studies on sobriety and rates of active involvement, attending meetings regularly and working on the program, among AA members. Based on these data, he put AA's actual success rate somewhere between 5 and 8%. That's just a rough estimate, but it's the most precise 
I've been able to find. Mm. Any reaction to that? Um, that seems awfully low, but gosh. It, it does. And, and uh, you know, uh, the anonymous part of the program, too, is it's a very hard thing to track. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and what is success? And five years, someone comes back and maybe they've uh, uh, made, uh, had, some, had some incidents in their life and they're able to uh, approach this differently. But I, I, do, I do see a very low um, rate of, um, complete abstinence. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so I wonder how many of those who, uh, wash out who don't meet all the, you know, criteria for success in AA mm-hmm. take personal responsibility for that blame, shame themselves and feel unnecessarily as though they have failed when perhaps the approach itself was not exactly what they needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, here's a little more from the article. Alcoholics Anonymous has more than 2 million members worldwide. And the structure and support it offers have helped many people. But it is not enough for everyone. The history of AA is the story of how one approach to treatment took root before other options existed, inscribing itself on the national consciousness and crowding out dozens of newer methods that have since been shown to work better. Mm -hmm. A meticulous analysis of treatments published more than a decade ago in the Handbook of Alcoholism Treatment Approaches, but is still considered one of the most comprehensive comparisons, ranks AA 38th out of 48 methods. At the top of the list are brief interventions by a medical professional, motivational enhancement, a form of counseling that aims to help people see the change, uh, see the need to change, and a camprosate. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the drug. A drug that eases cravings. Uh, an off-cited 1996 study found 12-step facilitation, a form of individual, individual therapy that <coughs> aims to get the patients to attend AA meetings, is as effective as cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing, but that study called Project Match was widely criticized for scientific failings, including the lack of a control group. Mm-hmm. All right. Once again, I'm, sh- uh, I'm shocked by that ranking. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, and I'm kind of shocked in two ways. I'm shocked that it's that low. Mm-hmm. I'm also, in a way, surprised that it isn't, you know, number one, or at least in the top three. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder whether there was any, you know, bias in the research. You know, mm-hmm. that, I got some orange-haired yeah. guy in my back of my head yelling, it's fake news. But, uh, <laughs> uh, okay. As an organization, Alcoholics Anonymous has no real central authority. Each AA meeting functions more or less autonomously, and it declines to take positions on issues beyond the scope of the 12 steps. The writer says, when I asked to speak with someone from the General Service Office, AA's administrative headquarters, regarding AA's stance on other treatment methods, I received an email stating, Alcoholics Anonymous neither endorses nor opposes other approaches and we cooperate widely with the medical profession, mm-hmm. which I think is a good, solid response. Yeah. Uh, the, the office also declined to comment on whether AA's efficacy has been proved. 
But many in AA and the rehab industry insist the 12 steps are the only answer and frown on using the prescription drugs that have been shown to help people reduce their drinking. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is the author of this article, you know, she gets personal, mm -hmm. and she talks about um, uh, an experiment of her own where she tried uh, naltrexone. Right, and tried the drinking. First, her doctor would not, her primary care would not prescribe naltrexone because she didn't have uh, a drinking problem as such, and he wasn't going to... Uh, yeah, he said, I'm not, yeah, not going to do it as an experiment. As an experiment. Because she didn't qualify as an alcoholic. Yeah. She was inspired to do this after um, uh, traveling to Finland. Mm-hmm to do some research there on the Finnish approach to their mm -hmm. drinking problem, social drinking problem, which mirrors our own. Mm -hmm. uh, Finland, like the U.S., actually experimented with uh, prohibition. Prohibition, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they've got a big problem with alcoholism. So, But they've got, they have a treatment approach there that, at least in some, they've got a, you know, a well-documented 75% mm -hmm. rate, not in... Uh, uh, not in uh, producing total abstinence among people who have mm -hmm. been abusing alcohol, mm -hmm. but uh, in reducing their drinking to, quote, safe levels, unquote. Right. Okay. All right. So, and that's based, uh, so naltrexone is an opioid antagonist, works on the brain, mm -hmm. that dampens the brain's positive response to alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, unlike antabuse, which is another prescription drug, right. antabuse will, what, it'll make you it nauseous It makes you violently sick. ill if you drink. Yeah, and yeah. so the, the idea is that the person will take antabuse every day in the morning, yeah. and if they drink in the course of time, yeah. now that it's in their system, it's cumulative, and, and it stays in your system. So uh, if you drink, you're going to get really sick, like go to the ER yeah 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 puke and dehydrated sick um potentially yeah um and um one of the things that about naltrexone too is that that's the oral uh medication mm -hmm. of uh another drug called Vivitrol which is right. a shot yeah uh, many times when you leave treatment now you'll get a Vivitrol shot uh, which is good for about a month. Oh, really? Uh huh. And the Vivitrol is really just the injectable version of naltrexone. Okay. Uh, the the trick here, one little tidbit about Vivitrol that I'm told in the treatment community is that it used to be a fairly the shot. Yeah. Uh, used to be a fairly inexpensive thing to administer. Oh God, no! And, uh, Are yeah, you kidding? I, I'm going to tell you. And when it and they realized that it had a great. Uh, uh, effect on opioid users, right? Because it does the same thing. It blocks the high. It blocks the buzz. It keeps yeah, right, you from, sure, sure. You know, getting all this uh, uh, euphoria, right? And and when they discovered that it worked for opiates, yeah, the price went nuts. Oh, no. so now it's a very expensive shot. And Are you kidding? No, me? I'm serious. It's just it's that it was when it was just alcohol. It, yeah, eh, this. Yeah. Now it's several hundred dollars uh, for a Vivitrol shot. Well, let me read her account. As I researched this article, I wondered what it would be like to try naltrexone, which the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved for alcohol abuse treatment in 1994. I asked my doctor whether he would write me a prescription. Not surprisingly, he shook his head no. 
I don't have a drinking problem, and he said he couldn't offer medication for an experiment. So that left the Internet, which was easy enough. I ordered some naltrexone online and received a foil-wrapped package of 10 pills about a week later. The cost was 39 bucks. <laughs> the first night, I took a pill at 6.30. An hour later, I sipped a glass of wine and felt almost nothing. No calming effect, none of the warm contentment that usually signals the end of my working day and the beginning of a relaxing evening. I finished the glass and poured a second. By the end of dinner, I looked up to see that I had barely touched it. I'd never found wine so uninteresting. Was this a placebo effect? Possibly. But so it went. On the third night at a restaurant where my husband and I split a bottle of wine, the waitress came to refill his glass twice. Mine, not once. That had never happened before, except when I was pregnant. At the end of ten days, I found I no longer looked forward to a glass of wine with dinner. Interestingly, I also found myself feeling full much quicker than normal, and I lost two pounds. <laughs> In Europe, an opioid antagonist is being tested on binge eating. I was an N of one, of course. My experiment was driven by personal curiosity, not scientific inquiry. But it certainly felt as if I were unlearning something. The pleasure of that first glass, the desire for it, both, I can't really say. Patients on naltrexone have to be motivated to keep taking the pill. But Sari Castren, a psychologist in the Contrals clinic that I finished, uh, that I visited in Helsinki, told me that when patients come in for treatment, they're desperate to change the role alcohol has assumed in their lives. They've tried not drinking and controlling their drinking without success. Their cravings are too strong. But with naltrexone or nalfamine, or nalmaphine, mm -hmm. they're able to drink less, and the benefits soon become apparent. They sleep better, they have more energy and less guilt, they feel proud. They're able to read or watch movies or play with their children during the time they would have been drinking. In therapy uh, sessions, Kestren asks patients to weigh the pleasure of drinking against their enjoyment of these new activities, helping them to see the value of change. Still, the combination of naltrexone and therapy doesn't work for everyone. Some clients opt to take antabuse, medication that triggers nausea, dizziness, and other uncomfortable reactions when combined with drinking. And some patients are unable to learn how to drink without losing control. Mm. In those cases, about 10% of patients. Castren recommends total abstinence from alcohol, but she leaves that choice to patients. Sobriety is their decision based on their own discovery, she told me. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always, you know, interpolating here uh, between the experience of the alcoholic and my experience, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, with compulsive sexual activity. Mm -hmm. um, I do know, you know, I would put myself in the ten percent when it comes to my medication. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that I can ever, uh, let's say, use porn mm -hmm. 
in uh, in a controlled fashion. Yeah, the brakes are freaking gone, mm-hmm. and it and it only goes downhill, and it goes downhill quickly, and it goes to bad places, and I become a person I don't want to be doing things I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and because that's my experience. I want to pull back a little bit from the idea. We talk about this. I hear it a lot in AA meetings because I do attend AA meetings mm-hmm. just for the benefit of listening to drunks talk sense to each other, right? right. Um, that um, you know, we're co- that that alcoholics going to chase this holy grail of I can someday drink normally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it feels dangerous and irresponsible, very reckless to suggest to somebody who is abusing alcohol that they might actually be able to become a moderate drinker. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Well, I don't like to suggest that they would uh, uh, be able to successfully do that on the front end, Yeah, uh, especially. Um, and for most people, for their brain to heal, mm-hmm. you know, we've got to have no chemistry. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what we were finding. Um, it's better, uh, even like with neurofeedback and things like that. We want, we want people to, to re, um, uh, reestablish the prefrontal cortex as their primary, uh, yes. place of function, as opposed to, uh, the limbic system that, you know, screams, there's a bear, there's a bear, there's a bear, you know, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. when there's not a bear and, uh, uh, and with alcohol and all of that successful drinking, um, I, and I will tell you, I have had clients that came in with, you know, they're drinking, uh, 15, 20 beers a day. Um, they go to treatment, uh, they go to AA, yeah. uh, they come to see me, they do, um, uh, neurofeedback, they take naltrexone. We have mm-hmm. someone in our practice that can prescribe that and, oh, okay. um, and does, okay. uh, from time to time. And, um, f- but there's still a long period of abstinence. Yes. And um, sometimes, and I want to be really careful, situational things change for people and their drinking diminishes. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, And uh, along with all of this other work. Sure. But I don't, in my own personal world, for me, I'm like you. I don't really have another spin in the wheel left. I don't think. Yeah, and right, if right. I do, I don't want to find out, um, you know, yeah, sure. uh, the hard way that I, it, that I only had two, yeah, right, you right, know, right, right, right. Sure, <laughs> because yeah, yeah. on, on the third spin, the third day, yeah. I may take it to a place that I used to go and I don't want to go there and be that person either doing right, those right, things. Right, 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 right. And so, um, my caution is, um, how is your life without alcohol now that you've not been engaged in these behaviors for this long, like right. the like the article? And then, um, do you want to continue in total abstinence? Right. Um, and, and but I've had people come in, just you know, again, just, we're throwing the data out there and yeah, being yeah. honest about it. Um, and they said, you know, I had a glass of wine the other night, um, first time in a year. I didn't want a second one. I yeah. just had a glass of wine. Yeah. And I haven't had one since. Yeah. And, you know, that was five days ago or whatever yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and I'm finding that here and there that happens. Yeah. Um, so somebody goes, well, then they weren't really an alcoholic. 
Well, I don't know. There's a, <laughs> you know, there's this wide spectrum here of ah, what that is. That is another point, yes. Yeah, she makes that point in the article as well. One of the things, too, I did really encourage people to read this article, not because it's, um, you know, uh, pulling back the sheets on AA or 12-step or work, but because she gives a very comprehensive history of uh, how the 12-step programs evolved, cultural uh, implications and things that happened in that uh, during those those times, how yeah. they've changed, how the how the modern treatment model got established in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. people started making money on rehab. Yeah, right. in the 70s, and there's a whole lot to be considered here. But but yeah, I mean the the um, uh, the part where uh, people people come back and they go. You know, well, that person wasn't really an alcoholic, or that person wasn't really this. There's a huge spectrum there, and the DSM uh, for behavioral health is really encouraging us to use alcohol use disorder yes. and get away from alcoholic alcoholism. alcoholism. Right. Uh, you know, drug addict is we're substance use disorder. Right. We're used to thinking of it in binary terms. Exactly. As, that's that, as she describes it. Either you're alcoholic or you're not. Yeah. 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 And, and and really, there is a spectrum. There is. It's like sexuality. It's like yeah. religion. Um, it's like autism. Yeah. Okay. You're not either or all of everything. Right. You know the the thing that that scares me a little bit, and and I'm not going to get down this rabbit hole too far, but but as our culture uh, seems to right now kind of be in a lot of black and white thinking. Yeah. In our either or ideologies. Right. 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 Um, it's going to be harder to have conversations about. Um, addiction and what that looks like right. um, when everybody has permission to think in such black and white terms. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That's my question. And to stop listening yes. to anybody who holds the opposite view. Yes. Yeah. Or an alternative yeah. Uh, yeah. idea. Yeah. 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 Uh, a little more on the chemistry. I found this fascinating. Here's what she says. Alcohol acts on many parts of the brain making it in some ways more complex than drugs like cocaine and heroin, which target just one area of the brain. Among other effects, alcohol increases the amount of GABA, a chemical that slows down activity in the nervous system, and decreases the flow of glutamate, which activates the nervous system. Mm -hmm. This is why drinking can make you relax, shed inhibitions, and forget your worries. Alcohol also prompts the brain to release dopamine, a chemical associated with pleasure. Over time, though, the brain of a heavy drinker adjusts to the steady flow of alcohol by producing less GABA and more glutamate, resulting in anxiety and irritability. Dopamine, uh, dopamine production also slows, and the person gets less pleasure out of everyday things. Combined, these changes gradually bring about a crucial shift Instead of drinking to feel good, the person ends up drinking to avoid feeling bad. Boy, mm -hmm. is that true? Yeah. Holy crap, is that true? Yeah. Alcohol also damages the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for judging risks and regulating behavior. One reason some people keep drinking even as they realize that the habit is destroying their lives. The good news is that the damage can be undone if they're able to get their consumption under control. Mm-hmm. And then here's this uh, paragraph. She says, Bill Wilson, AA's founding father, was right when he insisted 80 years ago 
that alcohol dependence is an illness, not a moral failing. Mm -hmm. Why then do we so rarely treat it medically? It's a question I've heard many times from researchers and clinicians. Alcohol and substance use disorders are the realm of medicine. This is not the realm of priests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, Nate, you know, um, to uh, AA's credit that in the 1930s, um, they didn't have the brain science research that we have today. Had no idea what and, was going on yeah. to produce. I mean, the big book describes the mindset of the alcohol. She talks about irritability. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what's, what's, what's Bill Fray's? We, uh, restless, irritable, and discontent. Restless, irritable, and discontent. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely perfect. So, yeah, he's diagnosing what's going on. Yeah. He sees that it's an illness. And they do a 90 day, 90 meetings in 90 days initiation kind yes. of thing, which we know now it takes about 90 days for the brain to reset, begin yeah. to rebuild. It is uh, a resilient, yeah. um, um, you know, uh, organ. Um, every, it doesn't all have to end in encephalopathy with right. the, you know, de- alcohol induced dementia and things. And um, it, it's so, it's fascinating because. Um, the things we do now, we want people to do for about 90 days before they're going to see a result. And it pisses people off so much when they come in and <laughs> yeah, go, yeah. you know, you mean I'm not going to feel better for 90 days? I said, no, that's not what I'm saying. But it's going to take you that much time to realize yeah. the the distance you, between you and it, yeah. which again, I'd have it advocate for abstinence during that time especially uh-huh. and and before you're going to realize that but also um uh this 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 um this relationship that they have with it. Yeah. You know, they're going to come in and talk to me about the relationship they have with this alcohol thing. Right. And why, what about their lives that they were drinking at? Yeah. yeah. They're going to go in and, and hopefully um, get some medically assisted treatment. Right, right, right. And they're going to go to some meetings and right, get right. some community. And right. they're going, and they're going to hear some things. And yeah. some of it they may agree with, some of it they may not. Yeah. Um, but, but the point is, is that I think this, multi-pronged approach the the 28-day model is not long enough yes absolutely so uh, let's just go on the record and say that's woefully inadequate right but it exists for a reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know Um, and she outlines that in the article too which i think is really interesting but but that 28 day is just enough to get you out of the out of the trench of the behavior yeah but you've got to follow it up with other other methodology you know, as I'm transposing your experience, uh, your description of your experience to my own mm-hmm. around sex addiction and, and me working with sex addicts, um, you know, very often a guy will come in, uh, you know, for, for sex addiction recovery and really think, uh, some guys think the problem is they're not getting enough sex, they're not getting the right kind of sex. Mm-hmm. And one of the toughest things to convince a guy to do when he comes into recovery is to become fully sexually abstinent, even if he's married or in relationship, and mm-hmm. there and, and he still has a willing partner. Is not going to shoot him if he comes near the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, he needs. It's good advice, and it, and it will be. It's really almost necessary, but you know, very very important to his recovery. Uh, that he give himself a ninety day break from sex of any kind. Mm-hmm. 
Now, do we want to tell a guy that uh, you're not going to have sex for the rest of your life? Right. Because you have been misusing it and you have been abusing it. Uh, you've been using sex for purposes for which it is not intended and mm-hmm. which ultimately are destructive. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. No. It's not necessary mm-hmm. for a sex addict to be a- abstinent for the rest of his life in order to be sober and sane. Mm-hmm. But he's got to develop a right relationship with sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and and more than that, a right relationship with a sexual partner. Right. Yeah. I had a had a spouse yesterday who asked me, he said, is she going to relapse when she gets home? Yeah. And I said, I don't know. Yeah. But the goal here is not for her to not drink the rest of her life. Yeah. The goal here is for her to get healthy and well and your relationship to heal, yeah. find out what is triggering her about being home, being yeah. in your marriage, where your roles are concerned and all of this, and the the likelihood will diminish. But when we, we, we this is a relapsing disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, we don't make promises, uh, but, but is the goal to completely ab- abstain? Um, that's way down the road. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and and I'm and I'm mixed on my reviews. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, yeah. and this is where that old wisdom of one day at a time. Yeah, you know, it's even you know when when I tell a new guy you know ninety days abstinence, uh, that seems like for freaking ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but when when we can take it a day at a time, we just take it a piece at a time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I am grateful for this. I, I'll tell you what I believe is the greatest contribution that a hey, that twelve step recovery has made uh, to people like me is the opening of safe community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, safe community, and it's accessible. Yeah. 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 And I'm not alone on this journey. Uh, at the same time, uh, I'm grateful that. I also, fortunately, I don't, I, the 12-step people that have helped me and the ones that I am in relationship with are not uh, doctrinaire, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not telling me that I've been encouraged by my 12-step sponsors mm-hmm. to see a therapist. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Which was has been extremely helpful. Yeah. I I went to an addiction therapist for 12 years after mm-hmm. I yeah. started attending yeah. AA meetings and got uh, some medical help as well uh, that was necessary. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and and I do believe that it's a multi pronged approach. Yeah, right. And I do believe it's it's an it's it's one of the ways to experience community at the very least. Yeah. Um, as you get sober, but I'd love to hear from our listeners and know what they think on this. I think we've stirred the turd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe just a little bit. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to see how many people no longer subscribe to the podcast. <laughs> 
how many prospective guests refuse to come on the program? Yeah. No. But you know what? Uh, it's like sometimes our guests. We don't always uh, advocate everything that uh, someone's uh, uh, bringing to us. But, but with the exception of Filipino stick fighting. Except for the stick fighting. Yeah. Which well, I think that's awesome. necessary. Everybody should do it. And without it, you'll never get sober. That's right. That's right. So that is true. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we, we want to give people a platform to have conversations. That We're talking about recovery. Yeah. Yeah. In so, positive terms. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been a great conversation. I'm checking my watch. You know what? I We've used up the hour, my we brother. Did. Yeah. Let's, well, let's just go eat. But let's have a <laughs> Let's, let, all right. I'm starving. Let's let's be kind to our listeners and let them go. Hey, thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for hanging in. If you're lis- if you're still listening, you have stayed with us in a tough conversation. We're grateful for it. Absolutely. And uh, we'll be back again next week with a, a new episode. We got a great guest for next week. You're going to love her. You're going to uh, when you meet her. Until then, I'm Nate. I'm David. We're your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 